This podcast is brought to you by the Islamic Center and NYU. For more information, visit our website at www.icnyu.org. Rahmatullah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Rasulillah. Ala alihi wa sahbatihi wa man wala. Praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We send peace and blessings upon our beloved messenger Muhammad. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, upon his blessed family and companions, <coughs> and those who follow them until the end of time. Uh, brothers and sisters, uh, assalamu alaikum uh, wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Inshallah, I hope everybody is doing wonderful. Inshallah, we're now continuing a series on contemporary issues uh, with a means to create uh, constructive thinking through a religious lens while at the same time equipping us to analyze different messages within America with that lens, critically. So that way we are creating an important duality for any religious community that is trying to maintain a commitment to the heavens while balancing responsibilities on the earth. That is that we are constructive and we are um, always interested in bringing benefit. As the Prophet said, the best of you are those who help others. Best people are those who help people. And at the same time, we are located as spiritual agitators, reminding society where it has steered away from the teachings of Islam, the teachings of the prophets, the teaching of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he talks about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says, Bashira wa nadira. The Prophet is a bearer of glad tidings, but he is also a warner. So he is sent to remind people. So it's important that we have language that allows us to play important roles as people who are cooperating and alliance building. At the same time, we are committed to prophetic spiritual agitation so that we are staying true to our message. And when we do that, when we fulfill the requirements of Bashira or Nadira, then we become a prophetic community not simply an economic community, not a cultural community, not an ethnic community, not a community which is rooted in politics only or economics only. We supersede that by being connected to what Imam Mark Manley talks about being prophetic morality. Bashiran wa nadiran. I am someone who is looking for critical, constructive, strategic relationships, but I'm also, as a Muslim, commanded to warn and to remind. So for that reason, we want to take uh, some contemporary issues, some topics related to contemporary issues, so that we can furnish ourselves with some religious language. I think it's important to realize that I am limited in my field of study, which is theology, Islamic law, Qur'an, um, so so I'm, I'm certainly not going to be able to provide a complete picture on these issues. What I can provide is religious raw materials 
for Muslim policymakers, for Muslims who are engaged in these spaces, uh, to be able to equip themselves with that religious language. And they'll, they'll be able to offer a cadence uh, to that language or, or a uh, critical response, you name it, but at least equipping people. So I wanted to talk about uh, gun control and in the classical books of fiqh, of course, this falls under what's called al-asliha, weapons. And it's very important before we start this discussion to remember and remind ourselves that Islam holds life as sacred. We talked about this in our discussions on abortion as well. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran after Audhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Rajeem, Wadaqarakarramna Bani Adam. Like we honored people. It's one of the major five universals of Islamic law is, is that people should be respected. And within that, within that is the respect of life, which is another major um, universal of Islam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Wala Do not kill unjustly in his soul. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Whoever kills one person, it's like they killed humanity. The Prophet said, this authentic hadith from Imam al-Bukhari, Prophet warned us of the seven disastrous sins, and one of them is killing people. So murder uh, is seen as one of the major agreed-upon sins of Islam. And to give you the, the sort of depth of that discussion, there was a small minority of scholars who considered the repentance of a murder is suspect, meaning that Allah SWT will, 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 will met out justice to that person regardless of what they do in the hereafter. Although the majority say, of course, they can be forgiven, but just to understand how um, sacred life is. And that takes us sort of into a discussion now on guns. And we know that in the United States now, there's, I think, up, upwards of over 300. There have been, I think, in the last you know, six months, uh, incidents of mass killings and mass shootings. And so how do we equip ourselves with some religious language that we can walk into conversations at work, family, friends, and we can be informed? Islam's position sort of potentially a position, um, not the only position that I'm sharing, of course, uh, on the issue, just my thoughts. So the first is that weapons in general, as I mentioned earlier in the books of fiqh, are considered permissible. So like owning a gun uh, from, from the Islamic perspective is permissible. Uh, we know this from uh, a few verses of Quran, as well as hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And I'm going to mention a very important legal axiom here that allows us to sort of draw this conclusion. Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala says in the fourth chapter of the Quran, verse 106, Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala is talking about when the Prophet is praying with people and it's a time of war and people are praying the fear prayer. He says, let let a group of them join you and let them arm themselves. They actually must arm themselves. 
We also find this in the eighth chapter of the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Turhibuna bihi aduwallahi wa aduwakum. That you must take all precautions from strength and, and horses and weapons and so on to inspire fear into your enemies. And of course, this verse is talking about the battlefield. What we understand from these verses of the Quran is a very important legal axiom that says that if something is mentioned in the Quran and it is forbidden, and at the time it's mentioned, it's not mentioned in the context of it being forbidden, it will be for, clear that it's forbidden later, whether through the Quran or through the hadith of the Prophet So if something's mentioned in passing in the Quran, and that act is actually forbidden. It will be mentioned. It's impossible for us in Sharia to believe that. And this axiom says, that people having a need for something during the time of the Prophet and it not being addressed. Like it's it's, it's like, for example, take your weapons. If weapons were haram, then we'll say, oh, and weapons are forbidden in this situation, this situation, this situation. But we don't find that. Prophet would have said, weapons are forbidden. He didn't say that. So when that doesn't happen, when that thing is not clarified, then that thing is understood to be permissible. An example of this is alcohol. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Mecca refers to alcohol as rizqan hasana, as a good provision. But then later on we find, you know, it becomes forbidden. Prophet clearly has forbidden alcohol. Early on in Islam, people embraced Islam when they were married to their sisters. Later on in Surah Al-Nisa, clearly made forbidden. So if something is mentioned in the Quran and we do not find the text tells us, oh, by the way, this thing is forbidden. It was mentioned to teach. It was mentioned uh, for the sake of building people over time to slowly give them the strength and the, the capacity to become deliberate, um, assertive believers. Nor is it mentioned in the authentic narrations of the Prophet or the practice of the early Muslims. Then we understand that thing, it stays permissible. It's called istishab in usul fiqh. So here in the Quran, we find a few places where weapons are mentioned. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not later on state they are forbidden. For example, like alcohol. Like marrying sisters together at the same time. So if something's mentioned again, I'm going to say this axiom. When something is mentioned in the Quran, if it's forbidden... It's impossible for us to believe that the Quran would not have made that clear or the Sunnah of the Prophet would have made that clear for us. So we find that weapons are mentioned in the Quran and a few places. I just mentioned two to make it easy. But then we don't find later on, oh, by the way, weapons are forbidden. You shouldn't carry weapons. So we understand that having a weapon, owning a weapon is permissible. However, when something is permissible, we often find that it takes different rulings. And 
it takes different rulings because of the major guiding universal principle of Islamic law, and that is that prevention of harm is central to Islamic law. Prophet said, There is no harm or reciprocation of harm. Talking about contracts, Allah says, The one who writes the contract and the one who witnesses the contract should not harm others. In divorce, Allah said, that you should not hold a woman in a marriage to harm her. Whoever does that is committing a grave sin. Then there are times we find where something may have benefit and may have harm. And that benefit and harm may be perceived by us. We may be wrong in that perception, but it's public perception. Like alcohol. You know, some time ago, people were saying alcohol helps your memory. Uh, a cup of wine a day will help with your blood pressure, this, this, this. Recently, I was talking with a physician and I asked him, he said there's absolutely no redeeming value, uh, redeemable value to alcohol. There's nothing redeeming about it at all. It has no benefit to human beings. However, people perceive this, and we find this in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala acknowledges this false perception. He says, yes, khamri wal maisir, and gambling, and now we see gambling widespread in America again. Qul kabir. There's a qira'ah, قُلْ فِيهِمَا إِثْمٌ كَثِيرٌ وَمَنَافِعُ لِنَاسِ وَإِثْمُهُمَا أَكْبَرُ مِنْ نَفْعِهِمَا So when that happens, when there is harm and benefit, we find that Islam prefers to prevent harm over achieving benefit usually. So the, what have I said so far? Number one, the first axiom I mentioned in Islamic law, if something is mentioned in the sacred text and it's not clearly forbidden later on, it's understood to be permissible. The second axiom that I mentioned is that Islam is out to look after and prevent harm. The third axiom now that we touched on is that when there is benefit in harm in something, if the harm is greater, then Islam looks to prevent harm before achieving benefit. This is very interesting when we talk about activism and political engagement, because you have to be certain that you're going to achieve something that's real and, and substantive for the community and for people. So here in this verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, They ask you about alcohol and gambling, say that there is a grave sin in them, a great sin in them, and there is some benefit, but the sin is greater than the benefit. So here we see this verse in Surah Al-Baqarah, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was called Dar al-Mufasid, that preventing harm is given preference to bringing benefit. Not all the time, but usually, 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 usually. And this axiom opens up a, a, a number of interesting discussions that I'm sure we're going to continue to have, inshallah. So now we can understand when the Prophet came into Mecca, he conquered Mecca. Sahih Muslim and the Muatabi and he said, If it wasn't that your people had just embraced Islam or Aisha, I will order the Kaaba to be destroyed and rebuilt on the proper foundations. Here is prevention of harm before benefit. Building the Kaaba is a benefit, it's not a fault. Rebuilding it, it's not a fault. That's why no one has done it since.
that we know of um, in history. But the Prophet knows that if they knock down the Kaaba, the harm is going to be greater. The people of Mecca may revolt again, and then you have more chaos. So here we see public policy. The Prophet is thinking about what is going to prevent harm first before achieving the benefit of rebuilding the Kaaba. That's why Imam al-Nawawi, in his explanation of Sahih Muslim, he, he, he mentions this brilliantly. This is an example of foregoing something good to prevent a greater evil. When the Prophet وسلم, let this man, that we know the story, urinate in his masjid, instead of jumping on him uh, and, and punishing him, because it's going to create greater harm. When Abu Dhar embraces Islam in Sahih Muslim, and he says to the Prophet, I want to go now to the Kaaba in Mecca, this is in Mecca, and, and announce my Islam. The Prophet forbids him from doing this. Why? Because it's going to bring more harm than good. And what happened, of course, we know Abu Dhar was beaten uh, brutally. We find this also in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, do not, and this is in Mecca, do not associate their, do not um, insult their gods. Those who they call onto other than Allah, do not insult them. If you insult our gods, why? Because they will insult Allah. This is a greater harm. So here we see, subhanAllah, the sharia, what's called mara'at al-dara wal-mafasid, right? Looking after and protecting people from harm. So the point is that when that happens and something's permissible, depending on the harm, the ruling can change. The fatwa can change. So something was permissible, now can become forbidden. So, for example, we see Sheikh Muhammad Abdu. He, he, because the four mafahib consider polygamy as permissible, not sunnah. This is a mistake people make all the time. But, but polygamy, to marry more than one, one uh, woman, uh, is not sunnah. It's Mubah, according to the Madikis, the Hanabila, as I know, especially in the Madiki school, the Hanbali school, I know. Mubah, I think all four, Mubah, not Sunnah. So we find some people like Sheikh Muhammad Abdul and others, 100 years ago, he said that in his moment, in his given phase of life that he lived in, he said polygamy should not be allowed because he was seeing a lot of homeless children in the streets. And that's the faqih. That's the scholar who's thinking in a way that the fiqh is not in a vacuum. The, 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 the answer is not in a vacuum. And this is a permissible issue. This is not something fixed like prayer or Ramadan or Hajj or belief in Allah or belief in the Prophet. This is something which is permissible. So the jurist is given this leeway based on the certainty of harm or the strong potential of harm. Whether someone agrees with Sheikh Muhammad Abdul or not, let's not get caught up in that side discussion. The point is, he was thinking in a way about the harm this was causing in his time. Rahimahullahu ta'ala. When we look at different narrations of the Prophet ﷺ about weapons, we see that at times it appears they take different rulings. Maybe someone then gets confused. You know, I read different hadith about weapons, and, and these hadith seem to say different things. Uh, so the person finds himself confused. And the reason they may find themselves confused 
is that they're looking at these texts from a particular perspective and not appreciating the broader axioms that I mentioned earlier, the axiomatic reading of religious texts at times is crucial. And that's what we're trained to do in the College of Islamic Law. How do you read from 30,000 feet up instead of reading in the moment and being boxed in? And this is what's called jama' al-nusus, where a person has to do all the research and gather together as many narrations as they can, and verses of Quran and hadith of the Prophet to then be able to look at this and see, is this permissible thing taking on different rulings because of certain situations that then I can then apply to my own situation. The first is the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in an authentic hadith. He said, blessed is the one who makes arrows, sells arrows, and uses arrows. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So here we find a recommendation. It's recommended for a person to make, to sell, and to use potentially. And he said, fil khayr, the hadith is conditioned, fil khayr, in goodness, not in evil. So here we see this hadith, it's like an encouragement uh, for people. Find another narration of the Prophet sallallahu when he was with his wife, Sayyidah Aisha, in Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, Sahih Muslim, Sahih al-Bukhari, and they saw the Muslims from Ethiopia playing, uh, dancing, uh, and wrestling, if you will, in the masjid of the Prophet and they were using swords. Prophet he didn't say anything. In fact, he, he, he encouraged his wife to continue to watch Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And here also is an evidence that lowering the gaze isn't fucked if there's no desire or shahwa. Because the Prophet he wouldn't have told his wife, you know, continue, keep looking, if looking at Someone is forbidden. Here we see why it's important to bring all the texts together. But that's not our discussion. But the Prophet ﷺ, he saw them playing with their swords and he didn't set, tell them to stop. Nor did he recommend anything. So we understand this to be permissible. Mubah. So the first like is an encouragement. Why? Because this is a time of war. So to prevent harm, make and distribute weapons. The second it's a celebration in the masjid of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This is permissible. A'yad al-nas, mubaha. In general, celebrations and holidays fall under permissibility unless they contradict the text of Islam, like Christmas, for example. That would be forbidden. The third, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, لا يشيرن أحدكم إلى أخيه بالسلاح That no one should ever point a weapon at his brother or sister. This, this, this means it's haram. It's forbidden for you to even in the direction of your brother and sister with a weapon. Also, you know, the Prophet he said that we're forbidden to kill people by fire. So here we see three different texts a recommendation, permissibility, forbidden. Maybe somebody reads the different texts, and there's others. Prophet said, Alimu teach your children how to shoot arrows. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, teach them archery. This is irshad, a recommendation of the mubah, of the permissible. So we see here 
one text about weapons that shows it's forbidden. There's other texts that do this as well, like no one should walk in Medina with their sword, un sword unsheathed. Number two, the Prophet encouraged people to make, sell, and use weapons. It's a time of war. Number three, the Prophet saw people in the masjid with their weapons. He didn't say anything. It's permissible. And then we mentioned the fourth is teaching our children uh, archery, swimming, and horseback riding. Again, this is Irshad recommendation. So here we see, subhanAllah, it's like different texts. And we see tahrim, forbidden. Don't walk around with your sword uh, unsheathed or your weapon unsheathed. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Maybe someone gets confused. And if we think about what I said earlier, that Islamic law is about preventing harm, we understand that each one of these texts is stated in a way that is going to achieve the maximum protection from harm. The maximum protection of harm, the context of each. So the degree of harm is what is driving the ruling when it comes to the permissible. You need to remember this. That the degree of harm is what can shape our community's discussions and opinions on how we want to look at the permissible. So that takes us now into this important uh, topic of gun control. Perhaps where well, we can locate ourselves in the middle of, of the two sides to become everything in America is now politicized, subhanAllah. And that is that our religion gives us great leeway, acknowledging the fact that people have the right to bear arms, to own arms. At the same time, in the face of very difficult harm and considerable harm and problems that we're seeing over and out, innocent children are being slaughtered. Uh, America, its, it's perspective, its apex is violence historically psychologically, uh, white violence is often sanctioned in America as heroism, top gun. There's a lot to be said about the role of violence in America that goes beyond even what I'm talking about that has to be taken into consideration, the psychological ramifications. That's why, for example, in the Muslim world, you see some free-thinking ulama, they say that it's forbidden for the government to have its military uh, all over the place, because this creates a sense of fear in the hearts of the people, the citizens of that country. That's not allowed to, to create like an Orwellian autocratic sense of terror uh, in the hearts of people. So I think what we would suggest here is that Muslims who are aware of the ramifications of guns in this country, the the impact of certain types of firearms, the, the degree and access which certain people have to firearms who shouldn't, then I think we can find ourselves somewhere in the middle. That is some, most circumstances, states that owning a weapon is permissible. At the same time, there's nuance here and there are layers within sociology, and psychology, and popular culture in the traumatic history of this country with weapons that have to be taken into consideration so that we can support things like background checks. We can support that certain type of weapons average people shouldn't have access to because of the potential harm that those weapons can cause. So perhaps as I, as I finish, 
this is some food for thought and I'm not there in person, so it's difficult to open it up for discussions. But just to walk back everything I said and then leave it to any questions or comments. The first is that Islam recognizes that largely weapons, holding a firearm is permissible. And when something in the Quran is mentioned or the Hadith and it is not forbidden, then we understand that thing to be permissible. Because it's permissible, it can be shaped in the rulings around it or conditioned. It doesn't have to be absolutely forbidden. It can be conditioned. There can be conditions set. And that's where policy comes in. That's where empirical data comes in. That's where research comes in. That's where we're seeing now what's happening to create those conditions. And largely in an Islamic state that's left to the government in the areas of the permissible, the government is allowed to, to legislate uh, laws. So the third is going to be now that it's permissible based on certain harm. And that harm can be definitive or highly suspect, like it's probable, highly probable. Then certain parameters can be brought into the situation that condition the presence of that permissible thing in society. Then we went through the different texts of the Prophet they illustrate how they're stated within the context of preventing harm. And then as I, as I suggested, my thoughts on this, of course, and this is just my thoughts, are that we find ourselves somewhere in the middle uh, on this discussion that certainly we believe owning a firearm is fine, but owning you know, military-grade weapons and everyone in the world having access to weapons is something that perhaps we would not condone because of the clear harm that's happening to people uh, in, in society. Uh, I'll leave it here. And if there's any questions, feel free to raise your hand and chime in. Barakallahu feekum. Wa jazakam Allahu khairan wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa sallam alaykum wa rahmatullah. May Allah subhanahu ta'ala increase us in khair and hope inshallah this has equipped uh, people with some, some basic sort of uh, language on the issue. And I hope that we'll continue to push ourselves to think uh, in, in more constructive and critical ways that we can create, create, a, create a critical partnerships and strategic partnerships in ways that do not cause us to sacrifice our own uh, religious uh, position. Uh, I'm not sure where that access to that link on the abortion sessions is. Uh, you may need to email uh, the ICNYU. But I plan to cover these things in greater detail in a course at my school uh, at Swiss, uh, where we go through like a series of detailed, like a class on contemporary issues, if you will. Inshallah. So we'll, we'll also be repeating some of these things again, inshallah. Jazakumullahu khairan. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increase you. Khair. I hope that this was beneficial for people. It doesn't need to be long. We can surmise these things uh, very clearly. I am not familiar with the Lao Masjid incident. I'm sorry, I'm not.
I am not familiar with that, so I wouldn't be able to offer any kind of comment. And I, I'm, I'm not aware of the political situation on the ground in some of the other parts of the world that I am here. Um, so at, at times, you have to forgive me if I'm not able to offer any uh, reflection on those issues. Uh, but in general, we're not allowed to take arms against the state. This is this is found. So I don't know what you're talking about. So let's not read my words into anything that's happening in Pakistan. I'm not aware of what's happening in Pakistan, unfortunately, and that's my fault. But in the 49th chapter of the Quran, it makes it very clear. I think verse nine uh, or verse maybe seven or eight. Um, that we're not allowed to raise up arms generally, generally. There are times when it's allowed, but generally against the state. When, there, when, when, when there's no reason, a legitimate reason for this. And when there's not a larger buy-in by the broader ummah within that state, then that is largely uh, condemned uh, because, of course, the ensuing sort of chaos uh, that happens. But I'm not able to comment on, on Pakistan. And one of the things we'll talk about in the future is this whole, you know, the idea of political, um, expressing political discontent within the history of the Islamic State. Is it true that like, you can't do anything? You just have to take it. Just be satisfied with, you know, horrible government. We'll talk about that perhaps in the future as well, inshallah. Barakallahu feekum wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. If you would like to listen to more, please donate to www.icnyu.org slash donate. For more of our virtual programs, go to www.icnyu.org slash classes. If you have any questions, email us at info at icnyu.org.